Hi, and welcome to this week's VFX Show. I'm Mike Seymour. We are on episode 138. Now, I have a very special guest, but before I get to that, I'm going to be joined by an old friend, Jason Diamond. How are you, sir? How are you doing? Good, I, I will take this opportunity to say the line, we are 138. People will get, <laughs> some people will get that, some people won't. Uh, we will. Um, excellent. Okay, but we are joined, uh, as much as I love having you on the show, Jason, because it's always a pleasure, um, we are joined by a uh, VFX show virgin, but one person who deserves to be on the show, my very time, long time business partner and friend, Jeff Huser. How are you, sir? Hey, Mike. How are you, Jason? Uh, I am right in thinking this is your first time on the show, right? It is my first time on the show. I've been a long time fan possible? and listener. How is that uh, possible? You own waiting the for the right show. <laughs> you own the show. <laughs> <laughs> I've enjoyed hearing all the different people on the show. I've really had a great time. Sorry, in fairness, As a listener. In fairness, I have asked Jeff in the past, I think, at previous companies or places, he wasn't allowed to do some things and uh, and... Uh, so obviously, Jeff, as does some of our other uh, guests who are working at major facilities, I just put a disclaimer in, speaks for himself and not for the facility he's at. Anyway, enough of the self-congratulatory talk about uh, and disclaimers. Um, we're here to talk about the film Hugo, which is uh, obviously set in the 1930s about an orphan who uh, lives in a train station when his both uh, father dies, but also his guardian, um, I think, ends up in the uh, in the river, as it were. Um, and before we uh, we go any further, I should say that this is just part of FX Guide's coverage. We actually have a, a really, I think, a stellar article over on FX Guide. We hope to also have very soon a FX Guide TV focusing on uh, just some of the miniatures or the uh, miniature photography that was done as a kind of a special little focus thing. And we also have a podcast with the visual effects supervisor and second unit director, Rob Legato. And I, you know, we're, you're getting a second hand from us now. You can get it first hand if you listen to the interview with uh, with Rob Legato, which Jeff, you you've heard because you did the intro for it. Yes, I enjoyed it a lot. Uh, I always like hearing Rob talk because he's it's it's just you can hear the way he thinks hearing him do these kind of interviews, and I think it's fascinating. So, and of course, you definitely. worked on Titanic uh, when you were at uh, eFilm, right? Is it eFilm? Yep. Yeah. When I was yeah. at CIS a long time ago. CIS, yeah. a big one. And yep. uh, yes. So, um, yes, I remember uh, visiting you around the time you were working on Titanic, which, of course, Rob went on to win the Academy Award for, which was awesome. Which, um, ironically, I saw as a trailer when I saw this film a second time, <laughs> the 3D version that was kind of freaky. And uh, Jeff and I actually went over to uh, Rob's house and interviewed him for an FX Guide TV retrospective on his career, which is also something I'd recommend you guys check out. Um, uh, basically, a sit- I think it was, uh, gosh, I'm going to challenge me. But we'll look it up. But I'm going to say it's 125 or thereabouts. 100, 105, I think. 105, is it? 105. I know for a fact that if you search for Rob Legato in the little search box on FX Guide, it's one of the first things that comes up. Actually, it's it's in the first lot of things that come up if you search for him on Google. <laughs> yeah. Likely. Um, yeah, we really enjoyed that. Sit down with, with uh, Rob, and he's been a big supporter of FX Guide. And uh, the reason I mentioned that, actually, is the reason we did that interview is Rob Legato was on set filming, and I think he was filming Hugo, but it may have been something else, uh, the film before. It might have been Aviator? I don't know. Anyway, he was on set, and he literally heard this show, the VFX show. And uh, as he, they were building stuff, he just sat there quietly listening to the VFX show. And that's how we got to uh, know Rob. And that's how um, Rob ended up on FX Guy TV. And so it's a nice closing of the loop to now be discussing Hugo. And, and I've got to say, a lot of supervisors, Jeff, don't they, uh, listen to this show. So, Yep, we've had that comment many times. Okay, so Jason, let's start with the film itself. What did you think of it? Uh, I absolutely loved it. 
Oh, good. I had no desire to actually see it prior to seeing it, ironically. The trailer just did nothing for me, and 3D movies in general are not entirely my thing, although I, I enjoy them when they're done well. And this film hit it on all levels. I mean, the story was great, which is, of course, the main issue. The acting was great. The direction was great. The art direction was great. The visual effects were great. The stereo was incredible. I think it may be the best stereo film you know, live action film uh, to date. And it just, I, it's, it's total love and respect and uh, homage to the birth of cinema wrapped into a story, wrapped into Scorsese, who obviously, uh, I mean, most people who know about Scorsese know this, but if you don't, he is a massive film historian. So he knows everything about film from the minute film somebody thought about it till now and it's clear he used the guy to make this movie so jeff what do you think of it well i first of all i couldn't agree more the promotion i think of the film starting there i was not i had friends working on the film so i had heard some buzz about it but not a lot of details and then i started seeing the trailers and i really just could not have been less interested uh, i don't know why just nothing resonated with me and so when we went to the screening um I kind of went in blank slate, which I was happy about because uh, Mike was in town for uh, some interviews and stuff recently, and we just happened to be sitting at dinner, and we got a little ping on our phone from Ian, who works with us down there in Australia, saying that the VES and there was an all-guild screening coming up, and it was while Mike was in town. So we all immediately, Mike and John were in town, we just immediately replied, yes, we're going to that, and uh, we were lucky enough to go. And uh, I sat there just... Hating 3D movies, I'm very much in Jason's camp. I'm not a big fan of 3D movies in general. I shouldn't say hating 3D movies, but just generally, I'm I'm not a big fan. And uh, I came out of that movie totally a changed person in that regard. I think that this was, as Jason said, just a brilliant use of 3D. I found myself not paying it. Biggest problem for me with 3D movies, I always end up finding myself not looking where I'm supposed to be looking. And I didn't feel that problem once in this movie. Yeah, yeah. me neither. Yeah. James Cameron, uh, I think actually, Jeff, after that screening we saw with Scorsese and, and uh, there was a panel afterwards with most of the uh, heads of departments, I think they filmed right after that. James Cameron sat down and he called it a masterpiece. And interestingly, he, I think he made a really good point, which is he said that the, the film for him was like, a, and I've got he named some spectacular car, uh, 12 cylinders but he made the point that it was firing on all 12 cylinders and one of those cylinders was 3d and i think that that was a good observation that it wasn't just that the 3d was good it was just that it was the art department and everything else was kicking it and 3d was kicking it um which uh, was a good point and i have to say that um i actually that's where i got uh, i talked to rob legato first after that screening with jeff and uh and then we you know did the interview later and I went up to Rob, and the first shot that I commented to him on was actually the de-aging, which was done in stereo. So for no other reason than that, I'm going to start as that as our first visual effects um, thing before we get into the rest of the film, because I think we can, we're going to lose ourselves in the film, so I'm going to hit some visual effects really hard up front on the podcast uh, so we don't do that, because there's a lot to discuss. Um, and I'd been doing quite a lot of work with uh, writing stories and working out stuff with the guys at... Um, at Lola on stories such as uh, Captain America and others. 
I thought this was the best de-aging stuff they'd done and it was in stereo and there's just nowhere to hide. What do you think, Jason, of the scenes, uh, the, obviously showing the early birth of uh, cinema that had two of the principal cast uh, de-aged? Yeah, I mean, you know, Ben Kingsley as as the one of the main de-aged actors is not an old looking guy to begin with so they sort of old you know aged him already in the movie with the gray hair and his and his facial hair and probably some makeup so but it was beautifully executed a like you said because they actually achieved it in stereo without having to to flatten it and then redimensionalize it afterwards but it was just so subtle like it wasn't like smooth and plasticky and you know everyone knows what ben kingsley looks like young so, you know, that's, you know, it's not like a random character that whatever. It's Ben Kingsley, clearly. So they probably had a lot of good reference. Um, and I think it was it was really seamless. Now, Jeff, you used to uh, work at the sister company of Lola. But, uh, yep, I was at Hydraulics for a few years and every now and then did some loan out stuff with, with Edson and the guys at, uh, at Lola. We used to work back and forth occasionally and uh, really great crew, really great guys. Um, and I have to say, I've never seen anybody – I mean, I was amazed at the depth, even way back then. We're talking, what, three or four or five years ago, um, that they really got into understanding the face and understanding the aging process. Um, I mean, they would bring in plastic surgeons – or they would bring in you know, specialists, plastic surgeons, and really – understand how facial parts move over time and ears and uh, everything. I mean, they were just, they really schooled themselves and immersed themselves in a way that I've not seen um, people attack a problem before. It, it is true that we've seen some other de-aging and they do look plasticky and they look like bad facelifts. I mean, I think that that it's funny that you should mention that about um, plastic surgeons because I'd have to say that the de-aging that Lola does is a lot better than the plastic surgery we see done by, you know, B-grade, uh, obviously surgeons on B-grade Hollywood types uh, where they look like they, you know, just have their face pulled so tight as to make it uh, lack any performance. And that would be the risk in, in screwing with someone's face to de-age them, that you'd actually lose any performance. And yet Ben Kingsley has a, a joyous wonderment in certain parts of his flashback sequences that is completely not hidden or destroyed by the work that Lola's done. It's, it's great. Well, I also have to say, I have to say kudos to Lola because, honestly, they own this category. They do, don't they? In a way that oh, almost no one else does. And for years. I mean, there's just literally no one has any hesitation about where you have to go if you're doing this type of work and they've never disappointed yeah yeah and they're quite modest as well um we see their name on credits occasionally we'll contact them and say you know what you do because of course <laughs> it may seem really obvious what somebody's done um but at the stage that we find out about it it's quite often right uh preview screenings and before the films are released and stuff it's actually really hard to know and nothing's been published yet and so occasionally we do that. We'll sort of contact people we know and say, hey, we saw your name in the credits. What did you do? And they're like, no, no, we didn't do much. I mean, we did a bunch of shots. Don't worry about it. And even here, um, I will say that Lola was incredibly modest uh, and I'm sure would be embarrassed that we're talking about their work first. But the reason I say that is that there's a double shot um, in the film uh, of uh, uh, George Millet and, Millet and his wife and they are circling each other. So the camera goes through to a happy period where they are turning around each other. The camera's kind of going around it. So you've got two rotating people, 
both de-aged, both in a close-up shot where, you know, you're basically from the shoulders up. There was nowhere to hide. It's rotating in full light, I think, in the uh, Star Studios, which is obviously the glasshouse thing. And I just remember thinking, like, that shot is probably not remarkable to anybody else, maybe, but for me, I just I was jaw-dropped. Now, part of that is, of course, my background in flame and, and yours, Jeff, because they do all this work in flame. Um, yep. But let's just, we do know how they did that. They basically got 3D models of the actors' heads and then worked out the roto in three space based on um, the 3D models, which were obviously just temporarily used to uh, work out where the heads and the dimensionality of the faces were. Now, that's something that, this is kind of a whole new thing for them because they'd done something similar with uh, Captain America using 3D models, but just as reference. And here they were using... And social network, too, they did. Well, no, that was kind of different because uh, I I think what they're doing here, you see, is they're using it for, for... uh, right? Well, but for a, for a depth re- for a reference. Ah, uh, okay, so yeah. See what I mean? It's like they're trying to work out how far back in Z space a nose is yep. to an ear. Um, yeah, absolutely. And then they did roto, and they used the new tools in Flame that allowed them to get that roto to then apply to the other eye based off the correct interocular and uh, and interaxial, sorry, distances that were provided by the metadata coming off the the rigs. But look, it was great, great work, and. Look, only 51 shots and probably the not the most impressive thing in the film for most people, but certainly right up there for me. And I thought it was really, really good. And, and you know, if you know enough about something, you start to become completely jaw-droppingly impressed with how it was done. So uh, no, I agree, well, Mike, also, and I, I think... Go ahead, Jason. Uh, I was just going to say, also, in terms of shot count or uh, standout work in terms of something that you actually notice... If it was done poorly, you really would have noticed, and it probably would have sullied, you know, a, a certain mm. part of the film. So, it even though it, it's not like you know a huge explosion or or something, you know that that's very noticeable as an effect that helps the film along. This helps the film along just as just as immensely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I was going to say, I think that um, the thing that I, my memory is that this first shot was a Ben Kingsley full face kind of a static shot. And mm-hmm. then it cut to a wider shot that then rolled in on wheels toward his wife, who, like you say, was spinning. And I did the same thing you did. It was like, oh, oh, I see what they're this is this has gone from like complex to crazy complex with three D dolly camera, spinning actress. I mean it was it was impressive. Yeah. I was lucky enough to be at Lola and got to see those A-beat on a big digital stereo projector. Because one of the things that's very hard to do, of course, is to compare before and afters in the stereo because, you, you know, we can't publish them on FX Guide or whatever because we can't recreate the viewing environment. And even if we could, your computer screen is the wrong size for those pictures to be correctly displayed uh, for the correct effect. So I, I sat in the theatre and we just A-B'd single frames and, wow, was it impressive. So, Yeah, and the other thing I should mention about Lola is, um, you know, I'm, I'm thrilled that they are the go-to place for so many of these things that they can talk about because... I would guess that percentage-wise, there's a humongous percentage of the work that they do that they just can't talk about. Right. So, so I mean, mean I know if I was an A-grade actor, I might get them to do something on me and not want you to know that it's been done. Is that what you're saying, Jeff? I would never say that. Okay, good. Well, I just said it. Um, anyway, <laughs> so Jason, uh, I don't know if you had anything else. Did I cut you off there? You wanted to add on the Lola nope. stuff? So, nope. So let's move away from that Lola stuff to the sort of broader effects work. Now, obviously, everything was under the... Um, the supervision of Robert Gatto, uh, but the primary 
uh, visual effects supervisor in terms of like being related to a facility uh, was Ben Grossman and uh, and Pixel Mondo. And these guys obviously didn't do the anti-aging stuff, um, but they did most of the other stuff. There actually were quite a few other houses and we're not going to be able to discuss everyone. We'll probably touch on a few, but um, but the vast majority of stuff was Pixel Mondo. And, uh, and Ben Grossman worked very closely with Rob Legato. And this isn't, Jeff, the first time those two guys have worked together. No, I think I know they did the Shine a Light video and Shutter Island together. I think those are the two that I know of. And there's a lot of this. Uh, we, we, you know, we, you, we were hearing from the DOP and people on set, uh, sorry, on the, the screening. And so many of the crew and so many of the people are like, you know, they're on like sixth, eighth. Even the guys at New Deal Studios who did the uh, train crashing through in the dream sequence, they'd done multiple Scorsese projects uh, before this. So there's obviously a lot of um, good blood for both people coming back, but also being invited back, which I think is nice. Well, if you listen to the um, Rob Legato podcast, if people listen to that, you'll hear it. I mean, the relationship that Rob and Scorsese have is a trust relationship. It's an experience relationship. It's a um, shorthand. It's, inter- you know, in every film that starts up, you spend an incredible amount of time trying to develop a language with someone. And if you find somebody that you can have that language with, using them again and again and working together as a team, I, I, I'm actually, it's one of my big frustrations in Los Angeles in the way that films are done here with visual effects crews disbanding at the end of a film as compared to San Francisco where you may have an ILM where everybody is kind of captive by geography. Um, the only exception to that I would say would be like Rhythm and Hughes. There are a lot of people at Rhythm and Hughes that are like, you know, 20 years in. I mean, that's coming up on 25 years at, at Rhythm and Hughes. You're absolutely right. And yes, they have a very good rep for keeping a team. Um, yes, I would love to talk to John Hughes about philosophies of business. I've actually reached out and tried to uh, to approach him a couple times about this um, because I'd love to talk to him about that as well as some of their approaches, unique approaches to outsourcing and stuff like that. That's a whole different topic. But yeah, I agree with you 100% though. So uh, the stuff about uh, the work that Pixel Mondo did, we, we did need to sort of break it down into a couple of different areas. Um, but I guess we should just set up the parameters of the problem. So uh, actually, you know what? Even before we do that, uh, on the general effects, Jason, I'll start with you. Was there anything that, that you really liked that you saw um, that sort of really stood out as like, I mean, I mentioned what I stood out and I didn't get around to asking you guys what, what you saw that stood out. So, um, I, I think one of the things that really stood out was the use of the larger film language history of film language visually so like the stop frame animation on the mouse on the in the store or the you know they use the zoetrope um thing twice they do it once when they're going into him remembering about his father and you you hear the sound of the zoetrope and the light moving behind him which i think they're intimating is coming from light through a gear but then also later when they find uh the pictures and they're flipping around and it looks like a zoetrope uh and other things like that i think starting to as because i didn't know anything about the movie i didn't read the book um slowly realizing what the story was as it was unfolding to me it was re- it was like a re- it was like a little adventure within an adventure because once you pick up on that and if you're interested in that like we all are it's like twice as exciting um on top of that 
as soon as the movie opened, I for some reason maybe it's just the French music, but I immediately felt like it was like Amelie, like it had a really nice similar, uh, not so green palette, but the, the very warm and and the the the. I don't know, it just sort of jumped out at me as that, but maybe I'm not that versed in French cinema. Um, but the effects, you know, it didn't feel overly affected, even though clearly, I mean, the art direction is insane. It's the, every image is super dense, but only because you have this rich palette and this rich, you're in the train station, there's so much happening at any given time, which I think was good because it told you that that things should be going on. It didn't just look like busy um, busy frames. And and Jeff, was there something that uh, that you know sort of stood out for you other than the one I've already sort of taken from you, which was the uh, the de aging? No, no, no. I my, my, I think that probably the one that I remembered in the screening that I just was aching to see again when I saw the film a second time was the um, the scene where he slides down the ladder and into the chute and the Goodfellas homage shot. Um, the, it was a really just a great sequence with the wanting to show the kids comfort and speed at moving through his environment. Um, and I just thought that was brilliant. And when hearing, hearing how it was done more, uh, the, the detail involved and the amount of work involved in that seamless looking shot series of shots. Um, I think that really stood out to me as a, as a big thing. Well, let's um, let's get into it then, because I mean, you've you've opened the door on what I certainly wanted to discuss, which was that uh, um, homage, really, from Rob Legato, I guess, to Scorsese on Scorsese's own work. Though, interestingly, as we discovered when we were talking to the guys, um, the uh, Goodfellas shot, the one that goes through the nightclub, through the back entrance, and and in. Um, now, I'm going to say Larry McConkey. 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 That's it. All right. And I just remember Larry. Uh, he was the same. Uh, steady cam operator on this as on that Goodfellow shot. So there's another example of a you know somebody that's obviously hung around with Scorsese for for a long time, which was great. Um, but of course, unlike Goodfellas, this was like five different sets on five different sound stages that I think Rob told us five different times, um, all pieced together. So uh, Jeff, do you want to like just describe a bit of it? I mean, people want to go into it in in, in killer depth. They can go to the FX guide stuff, but maybe just describe that uh, coal shoot spiral problem because both you and I, I think, uh, were like, "How the heck did you get a stereo Ari Alexa right. rig down that sucker?" Right, absolutely. That was the th- that was the part of that shot. I mean, going down the ladder, I was a little intrigued by, but I figured, oh, they could pull the back out somehow and slide the big rig down there, maybe. But the, when you went to the spiral. Um, slide shot. You just could not figure out how they physically followed the boy and got that ginormous rig down that that's that center hole. It just didn't make sense. Um, to find out that they did figure out that it was a physics problem they couldn't solve, and actually built the chute to rotate around the camera, so the camera was doing a vertical plunge, but not rotating, and they just kept the boy in the center and rotated the boy, you know, rotated the shoot around that, that fascinated me. That was, that was really clever. Uh, there's a couple of those where they, you know, instead of, cause the other one is, uh, when, um, the station master is being dragged along the platform uh, by the train, his, uh, 
leg aid, I'm going to say, because he doesn't have a mechanical leg, but it's an outside armature over his leg, is caught in the door and he's just dragged down the station. And I didn't even think about that shot when I was watching it because I was enjoying the performance, really. Um, but they, in that case, they did the same kind of trick. Instead of moving the train away or bringing the train into the station, they basically brought the station away from the train or and reverse it and so it was the station that was moving the train was completely uh, standing completely still and there was 40 feet of, of train station moving in parallel to the train so that it looked like he was being dragged along the station in the same way they rotated the entire green screen set that had that shoot in it as you say to make it look like he was going down the chute and the camera was following and all the camera had to do was go down vertically now jason that worked really well for me did you similarly kind of find that even when they put the whole digital room back in i just felt great to me yeah that whole sequence was great because it it really informed uh like jeff said like with the goodfellas homage that the kid clearly i mean he's living in the in the bowels and extraneous rooms of the train station and to be a kid and survive clearly he's going to understand how it works it's sort of like the lost boys and peter pan or something like that so he can he knows his way, and when the the, uh, the latter the latter one, I was with Jeff. Like the latter one, I was like, "All right, maybe it's a midget, maybe it's a you know a stunt guy, or you know it's a weird angle, um, or that they wouldn't let the kid slide down." But you know, and and I guess they used a hydraulic platform to pull him down, a little elevator platform to pull him down, and just removed it later. Um, but but the coal shoot really was, I think, the the triumph of that whole sequence because to get like you're saying to get to realize you have to actually just flip the problem backwards and say oh well there's the problem isn't the set isn't the camera it's the set let's just move the set yeah it's a real sort of mountain to muhammad muhammad to the mountain kind of thing going on yeah yeah well and i think i think this also goes back to the same the same thing we were talking about with the experience with you know people working together a lot in previous um, films because um, it was clear that, that you know, this was Rob's second unit baby and he shot all the in-between in pieces and the amount of time that they spent, you know, rehearsing and figuring out the camera stuff and building special camera rigs. I think he and, said it took 18 takes because they're actually yeah. manually turning the room because, of course, if you had something on a motor you might run the risk that the camera would run into the kid or something would go wrong and someone would get hurt. So they were manually rotating the room, even though they had an encoder to work out what they did later for, for digital um, uh, match moving. But Jeff, yeah, like 18 and takes. He said they were, when he said they would do like two days of rehearsals to work it all out for each of those little sections, then they'd do another day of rehearsal once they had it figured out to get the, if the primary actor was involved, um, to do the to be able to understand the motion and the timings and stuff, and then they'd shoot it, and that kind of time for a sequence like that is amazing, and it, it just it really shows in the in the final product, and it really does stand out. Look, we're not here to talk about the actors, but I will say that I do think the actors in this, uh, especially the boy and the girl, were great. I mean, I actually, fantastic. All the cast yeah, were really no, good, no. Um, but it wasn't. They weren't cliched performances. They weren't sort of Disney. Well, I don't pick on Disney, but they weren't you know, sort of commercial cardboard cutouts that you could see what they were going to do in every situation. And, and yeah, and when they were doing things, they seemed to be genuinely joyous in doing them. It didn't seem like they were 
you know. Yeah, it wasn't like a Oliver Twisty, like, oh, I'm just a street urchin, and oh, something's going to happen. You know, you were like really invested in yeah. the kids, in the kid, in his story. Well, and when we saw the screening and we heard the editor talking afterward uh, about the complexities of developing the other characters, because you've got all the main characters, but then there's all the characters of the train station that, especially on the second viewing, I just really was impressed by how much they add to the film and how much you, you want to know more about them as the film goes along and you get these little bits and pieces of them. And if you try to take them out of this whole story, it just is a different piece. Now, yeah, they totally play a part. It's great. Now let's be critical for a second because I want to discuss something here. I think this is like a really uh, delicate subject, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go there. I think it was you, Jason, that mentioned the mouse on the table. Mm. Yeah, okay. So now I want to discuss this because um, the mechanical mouse that is rebuilt by Hugo at the station shop is put back on the table and at this stage, we don't really know what's going on other than it was a mechanical mouse. And it scurries around the table. Now, when I saw it, and I think I even said to you, Jeff, as we were walking out of the thing, I think that was a temp shot because the motion blur was wrong. Well, I've since learned that the, that the Pixel Mondo Q&A uh, supervisor rejected the shot at Pixel Mondo because they said uh, motion blur is missing. And to which Ben Grossman came back and said, no, it's not meant to be there because it's stop motion. Now, this is one of a gazillion, to use my children's expression, uh, homages in this film where they've done techniques and recreated shots and done things old school just to pay respect to filmmakers that went before them. And because, as we said, Scorsese is such a film nut. Do you think that was valid? I mean, because the only thing I'm going to say is that I've gone back and forth on this. I love that they did it. I love almost everything else in the film. But at some point, it took me out of the film to have that shot looking odd. I don't know. Was it not odd enough? Was it just a line call? Am I just a geek well, here's for my question, caring? Yeah? Here's my question. If you weren't at a visual effects-specific screening and you went to the theater, would, it, would you have thought about – and there were, weren't temp effects. Would you have been as sensitive to thinking about which effects were final? I definitely just looked at that shot and it just struck me as slightly odd. Um, but I tell you what, it didn't strike me as slightly odd when they had the uh, glass studio time-lapse collapsing. Right. Now, we'll come back to discuss how that was done, but I, I would just took that as a valid creative thing. It's time-lapse, you know? It's like, okay, sure. That's a, a technique. It doesn't take me out of the film. I know what it is, but I just, you know... But in this yeah. case, I went, oh, there's something weird about Reason that shot. The reason it worked for me is, I mean, it's a definitely early in the movie before you understand that they're working in the sort of the, the film language is yeah. building. So, yeah. so you don't get that yet. So maybe on retrospect, you're supposed to get that. But also um, the fact that it's mechanical and not a real mouse worked for me because it's mechanical. So he's winding it up and clearly there's it's a magical film anyway. I mean, just look at the poster with a giant key and sparkles, you know, it's, it's a magical film. So you have to go in and it's with kids and whatever. So I'm already, I'm already in, uh, you know, neck deep in, in for that kind of thing. So I'm, I'm, it didn't, it didn't jump out at me, uh, in that way. I mean, and I liked it. It looked really nice. It was, it was, it, it fit stylistically, uh, but it, it also fit as uh, aesthetically, I thought, you know, in terms of matching, because they shot that on 7D, right? The yes. stop motion stuff? On, yes, so, dual, dual 7Ds, yeah. Yeah. 
Jeff, what do you so, it, it, I, I like you in the screening went, whoa, what was that? And they had specifically told us the only shot that was missing in the screening were the, well, the end credits and then the opening through the train shot uh, between the trains down the platform at the train station. By the way, how did that look, had look when you saw it the second time? Because I haven't oh, seen, it's, that, it's, it's I haven't very seen that shot. It's very pretty. Okay. Yeah, yeah, it's very pretty. Um, and it, it is funny how it, it made a big difference seeing it that way as opposed to the, the previous. Well, we got obviously. to see stereo previews on a giant projected screen, so <laughs> I right. thought it was kind of cool. That's right. But anyway, I just, so no, I I just, so they, they didn't point out the, uh, the mouse, so I didn't think it was temp. But I definitely questioned it when it went by. Hearing that it was stop motion afterward, um, I actually learned that after the second viewing. On the second viewing, I was also bothered by it, but not as much. And I think my problem with it was it was just a little too f- magical. He, the mouse was doing more than you. You know, it was like it was like it was given new powers. You know, like it could never have done that as a wind-up toy. Which Jason, you think is valid because it was just magical film, right? Well, also because it, you're you're starting to understand that Hugo is a special kid, and clearly he's doing things that kids don't normally do. I mean, he's wily and he's smart, and he's but, building a robot in his. But I had no sense that the robot was going to come to life or anything. Or did you think that? Did you think that there was like it was going to go into magic, magic? Like, I hoped it wouldn't. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> because yeah, it was good. because it was set up very well. You know, I, I it, it did what it should have done, which made me very happy. Okay, well, yes. it, it's, it's a fine line. I, as I said, I go back and forth on this. I want to love it because I love the film so much. But that one area, I'm like, d- do I wish that they hadn't done it? No, I definitely like the fact that they were pushing all the boundaries. If this one, for me, pushed it a little harder than, it, than maybe it was cool, uh, so be it. You know, I'd much prefer them to push. I, I've often said this. I'd much prefer someone to push and fail than not even try pushing. Um, well, but, now that I've heard a couple of the filmmakers talk about it and why they did it, I'm fine with it. Okay. It did stand out to me in the film, but now that I understand it more, and I don't know that that's valid, but for me, it's fine <laughs> now. Well, well, if they hadn't done any other like film homage thing, and that was the only little trick, then then I I would uh, I would agree with you. But since it's sort of part of this larger uh, pantheon of of film language that they sort of touched on, it, yeah, it, it's in the toolkit. Okay, well, let's, let's touch on some of these other homages and stuff because uh, we assume, dear listener, that you have seen the film. So please uh, play along at home. So, so I'll give you a couple of these. Just give me whether you spotted it as what it was or you were uh, perhaps ignorant to that particular aspect or just too immersed in the story to, to care. So we've discussed the mouse. Were you aware that the skyline of Paris matched perfectly with uh, Under the Rooftops of Paris from 1938? No, no. You, you, so you're not that versed in cinema language that you were spotting, but you would have presumably have spotted Harold Lloyd references from Safety Last, right? Yes. Yes. Okay. Yes. The train approaches the station, or the arrival of the train, uh, which was what was shown in the tent scene where everyone ducks. Okay, I think we all knew that from our yeah our mm-hmm. film history classes, and when I did it at uni, did you pick that they recreated that shot twice in the actual? Re- well, real, <laughs> the film real uh, train station. They actually did that shot with trains coming into the station where the kid was running around. And, and not only that, but they got every extra to match, even though the shots were completely unrelated, so that there was the right extras in the right positions, albeit in different clothes and different time of day. 
And the guys on the train shoveling coal, right? That scene too was well, was yeah, very. That's even homage-y. another one. That was even another one, actually. But go on, yeah. Did you get the yep. the train station arriving? Because that the second one you're talking about is from the Human Beast, right? Or La Bête Humaine, um, which is the the coal guys. I, yeah. I got the coal guys one. I did not get the two second and third shots of the arrival of the train at the station that was the station in the film. I just didn't get no. that. And, of course, all of that was great. I got, like, screen. half of it, yeah. Oh, did you? Okay. Well, I got, like, the, guy, the coal guys, and I pieced together the train coming in, but I didn't realize that they matched them up both times. Which I thought was way cool, and you just so want to get the screen grabs of that and have a look at it. Yeah. <laughs> okay, did you get the train crash sequence in the dream as being a really exact... Uh, replica of the actual derailment at uh, the Granville Paris Express. Well, I'll say that there was something comfortable and familiar about it, and I couldn't figure it out. And then not long after the screening, or maybe it was, I don't remember when, it was right around the time the film came out, I guess, somebody posted something with a link to the Wikipedia with that image of the train coming out of the building. And I just went, oh, wow, now I do remember that. That was a real image of a real photograph of the real accident that happened there. And it's remarkable how much it matches. Did you get that one, uh, Jason? I, I, I would say that I've had a almost identical experience as Jeff. That I, it felt very like, I, I feel like I know this, but I didn't know where. And then I, and then I found it afterwards and, and was similarly uh, shocked at how well they did it because new deal did it for real <laughs> so to make a real train miniature train fire out of a building and hit real physical things and still fall 98 percent the same as the real train did you know by accident is pretty insane and then ironically it's happening in a dream sequence which is just too right. cruel for some kind of <laughs> self-referential whatever okay so i don't know if you noticed we did the, the pictures are in um the fx guide article if you want to compare them but uh, the actual train, the actual one that uh, that careered, I can tell you that it went 30 metres across the concourse, smashing through two feet of solid thick wall before it went over the terrace and sailed down and, and hit uh, down below, like basically 10 metres below. What's really, what's really interesting about that is that, and I just think this is hysterical, right? Well, it's not hysterical, it's horrendous. But anyway, only two of the 131 passengers sustained any actual injuries. The only person that died was some poor woman walking on the street below who was killed by some falling masonry. I mean, can you imagine like, I mean, your train end up like that and like no one on the train was serious? Well, two people were hurt, but that was about it. But, but this is where it gets funny, I just think. The, the conductor was fined 25 francs and the engine driver 50 francs because apparently they were running the train too fast and then a, there was a mechanical fault with a Westinghouse brake that caused the whole thing to go pear-shaped. And that is what the guys at New Deal had to recreate. And as you said, it's wow. just spectacularly well done. Um, I will say also that, they, that uh, as I think Rob mentioned, they couldn't get the stereo cameras in quite as close as they needed to on some shots. So there are digital... 3D shots that the Pixel Mono guys did that match in with... Uh, but as Rob said, it was great for those guys to have the reference of the... Well, I'd say miniature, but it's actually... Jeff, it was enormous, wasn't it? Yeah, the photographs I saw, um, which I'm assuming we'll have in the story as well, the um, from the New Deal um, mm. uh, shoot. Yeah, I mean, when I saw those, I was like, wow, that's like a three-story miniature kind of thing. Or three-person height, I should say. Yeah. Uh, you know, miniature. They showed guys painting it and things like that, and I was I was really impressed by how big it was. 
We saw a shot on the Alexa. Of course, it's shooting digitally because um, it's stereo on the Cameron Pace rig at uh, 52 frames a second, apparently, according to the usual guys. So there you go. Okay, so... Um, and what do we think about that? I thought it was so good that we have an entire FX Guide TV about just those three to four shots because I thought it was spectacular. But that's me. What do you think, no, I mean, I meant, No, I meant the Alexa is what I was asking about. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, I thought the, sh- the film looked good. Um, Jason, what do you think? Uh, I... I I think the only other film I saw that had I kn- knew was shot on Alexa was Drive, so so I was I thought it looked beautiful. Well, uh, I didn't see. I mean, nothing. Looked... Anonymous was on uh, Alexa. That was. Oh right, I haven't seen that. Um, uh, here's the thing. I'm going to ask you about. Did you notice the grain that they added in the grainy sequences? Um, you know what? At a certain point, I just stopped paying attention to all that stuff because the movie just really drew me in. I, even, I never even took my glasses off, which I do all the time. Well, that's yeah, a compliment in of itself. But, yeah. uh, but ben yeah, Grace, I was sorry. I was very much aware. I mean, well, I was, I was, I wasn't aware of it at the time until I heard it being talked about that those old film sequences that they created had to match the grain feel of those old sequences. And as we know, grain in 3D is a bit of a problem. Exactly. Do you want to explain that for people that maybe aren't quite as clued in, Jeff? Well, when you put grain over left and right eye, like we would normally do over a lot of footage, um, well, I should say that a lot of people like that look and like to do that, it becomes like a shower curtain or a, a, a... a pa- it basically reveals the screen plane because it's a flat grain that just is, it just doesn't work. Bottom line. I mean, if you, we were doing a, uh, I've done a commercial recently with a big film company and they were, it was a 3D project and we were talking about grain and the stereographer was like, we do not do grain, period. <laughs> it's not allowed. It's like, okay, got it. So they had some clever solutions for this, right? Yeah, because like, as you say, if you put grain up that's different to your left and your right eye, which is what happened if you shot on two film cameras, you'll just get an annoying artifact, which is your left and right eye aren't matching. And so your brain doesn't like that because your brain doesn't see the world differently between left and right eye. And it doesn't care that the reason you're doing it is to get around a shower curtain problem. <laughs> so it just says, no, I don't like that. Um, so then you go, oh, okay, well, I'll just put the same grain on the left eye as the right eye. And then as Jeff said accurately, yeah. it feels like there's a screen plane that you can really see where it's all sitting um so what they can did, i make a guess yeah, can i make ahead. a guess before you say is it is it uh stereo particles yeah they completely wrapped the grain on the stereo items where they were in the z depth that they were at if it's in the distance the grain's in the distance if it's up close the grain's up close awesome i mean very <laughs> clever <laughs> awesome and oh my god attention to detail um yeah, yeah. Well, so, let's yeah, talk a little bit about that because that kind of goes back to the whole stereo thing uh, all the way through this film. We've, we've all praised it. Um, I thought one of the most amazing things I heard was the number of people that worked on this movie that had never done a stereo movie. And for this to be what I would consider a stereo masterpiece, and obviously James Cameron has said such things, like you said, I mean, that just is mind-blowing. I mean, Ben probably had the most experience of anybody on the film with stereo. Yeah, because he'd done Alice, right? Yeah. Uh, so full marks to Dimitri. Dimitri Portatelli is the uh, stereographer, and um, he is obviously now the hottest thing in stereo 
globally yeah. because he's totally nailed it. But I did, I, did la- I did laugh at one anecdote that we got told, and I hope we weren't told this off the record because it's just too funny for words. Um, so Scorsese would spend a lot of time, as would uh, everybody else we've mentioned, uh, getting the stereo right. So let's assume for a second that I'm not for a second taking away from the director's vision to build the shots and the art department's ability to to load those scenes with lots of depth and lots of good stereo. But <laughs> Scorsese would be in the uh, you know viewing tent, obviously watching the stereo feed, and he'd literally yell out, and I'm not going to do a Scorsese impersonation, but he'd yell out, Dimitri, don't skimp on the pâté, <laughs> which, <laughs> which was his way of saying, hey, I want lots of stereo, make it bigger and stronger and don't you know skimp it out. Because I saw, I don't think I, I think I can say this, I hope I can say this, I saw another film, by uh, sort of a very big director who may or may not have done Jaws and Close Encounters, uh, done by a very big place in New Zealand. And the thing about it is, I'm not talking about the film now for a second, just the stereo. I took the glasses off at one point because my eyes were a bit sore and there wasn't much stereo going on. Well, and that I think has been the, that's been the, that was the Tron gag. Tron did that very effectively, I thought. Um, Just people have been kind of playing the stereo a little safer. And yeah. it was clear in this film, even though you weren't hit over the head with it, it wasn't like people's noses were sticking off the screen very often. Um, it wasn't that kind of 3D. They still were able to push it further than I think even they expected. It's almost as like, con- do you know, sorry, just to use an analogy, it's almost like yeah. you went and saw a comedy that was a really charming comedy but didn't have fart jokes. Do you know what I mean? Like, and everybody else That's has been great. making not very funny films lately being not very stereo but but no one had the balls to go out and make a very funny charming film that just didn't have big stupid fart jokes and the big stupid fart jokes in stereo films are spears coming at your face and ends of guns sticking out you know halfway across the studio audience and he didn't do that he just made a really good film that was charming and oh by the way that means you can afford to have quite a bunch of stereo just don't play stupid gags that annoy people well can I say that one of the things that we heard from Ben was that they made the decision before they rolled the cameras that this was a 3D movie. And they viewed it in 3D all the way through. Shots were finaled in 3D. Um, and they had to make that decision that it was a 3D movie and they didn't look at it in 2D at all. Which you would assume you would want to do, correct? I mean... Well, most movies, I would say, final one eye and then go back into the stereo. Yeah, that's cool. pretty much been the standard workflow. Yeah, it's true. Because, Even in because you're never well, because you're never going to get it finished. Although, I mean, I mean, I have to say this is a remarkable thing to say because, I mean, you're going to discard some of those shots, and doing the stereo work is is not. I mean, you you have to do it at the same time as you're going along, really, honestly. But you know, finishing the 3D stereo is a big deal. Yeah. Can I can I point out that it's in in this line about the the attention to detail of the stereo is that every shot has some sort of smoke or particulate or something in depth. Oh, oh, you know? I'm so and glad it, you said that. I am so glad you said that because I've not heard anybody mention that and especially on the second time I saw it there's always fluff in the air yeah. um off the cost you feel like it's coming off the period costumes you feel like it's the gritty train station there is yeah. smoke 
or and mostly dust and stuff like that. And I really think that that made a huge difference in the 3D. I don't know if it was particles. I don't know how much of it was practical. I found myself just loving. It felt that stuff. real, yeah. Oh, I think a lot of it was real. Yeah, I think. And there's that one heard, shot. Yeah. There's a one shot of Sasha Cohen who I was real. I didn't know who was in the movie at all because like Jeff I went in like blank because I was just like all right well I'm going to see it because I got to see it for the show but I don't know anything about it I'm just going to sit down and watch the movie and when I realized that it was Sasha Cohen as the station lieutenant I was excited because I like him and I think he's a really good actor and he did an amazing job in the movie and there's a shot where he leans forward it's yes. the one yes. I mean you could call it a gag but it was so perfectly executed in the story well it was motivated by the story, story yeah exactly that that it worked. Yep. And he leans forward because he's looking at Hugo and trying to see if he's lying or whatever he was doing. And his, the brim of his hat was actually what was in focus, and it was sticking out. And I was like, "Wow!" Like it was. Well, and he crossed the center line of the screen. It kept going. Right. It was yeah. like you thought he was going to stop dead center in the picture, and no, he kept going. And it was just, it was that was a great shot. Yeah. Okay, well, well, I'm going to swing back to my homages, though all of them that we know of so far are listed on our FX Guide story. But there are two that I wanted to just flag because they're relevant to us. Firstly, this one is more just a I couldn't believe how cool this was one, which is as soon as they step out of the train station, there are a bunch of houses outside. Um, there's no way you could have got this. I mean, if you did, I'm just way impressed. But there's a bunch of houses that are outside the train station, just houses. These are the houses that they went to and found. They're still around. They went and found where Millais actually filmed his original film that broke that caused him to reload the camera and discover the jump cut. And these were the buildings in the backgrounds of those shots. And they recreated those buildings digitally perfectly so that outside the train station, those were the buildings that you were seeing. This is where he actually reloaded the film and then discovered when he edited them together, look, the people jumped, but the building, but as they hadn't moved the camera, the buildings didn't. Voila, the birth of visual effects kind of thing. And so they went to the trouble of actually going, finding the exact spot in Paris, which obviously hasn't been you know, heavily redeveloped, uh, though suffered a couple of wars, and... Um, and just rebuilt that whole section. And then, of course, they had the film from the stuff that he shot, that combined with what they could actually find for real, put it all together, and I just thought, oh, my God, what a dedicated craft to do because no one, I mean, no one but the best film people would have got that one, surely. Um, you got to give them points for that one. Come on, guys. That's amazing. Yeah, no, that's deep. I, I, I obviously didn't know that, but discovering those things makes – you really, you know, obviously the attention to detail all the way down to that kind of stuff it makes you love the film even more. Okay, but the one I wanted to talk about, because it is so visual effects, I mean, that one's obviously the history of visual effects. This one is just, just downright, I don't know, it's either torturous or genius. You decide. The death of the father, uh, it's uh, obviously the fire and explosion. We know that um, that was built by New Deal, and then they had actual, you know, flames and stuff going off. We also know that Pixel One took that and remapped it and did a whole bunch of stuff on it. But did you pick that it was hand coloured? No, not at all. I did not. So I did not. So check this out because I just think this is insane. So apparently Scorsese says, "Hey, we should hand tint some stuff," and they were like, "Yeah, good idea. What do you want to hand tint?" It's like, "Well, let's hand tint this section because obviously he's remembering, and so maybe he would remember in colour." And the only way they saw colour in those days was hand tinting. And obviously, a lot of hand tinting was done on these early films. So they get this 1920 by 1080 frame, 
and they want to hand tint it. Well, now you and I, all three of us, could hand tint pretty well in Photoshop these days because, you know, good digital tools and stuff. So Scorsese was like, no, let's just print it out on actual 35 neg and then rescan it again. And, you know, you'd hand paint the rescan stuff. But obviously that introduces some registration problems and some weird stereo stuff that maybe is uncool. So they got the 1920x1080 stereo left and right frames. Don't forget they're doing this in stereo. They shrink them on the screen so that it's actually physically on the screen, the same size as a piece of 35mm neg. But it's only a zoom, you understand. They haven't actually changed the resolution of the shot. And then that's what they make the artist hand tint over. So they have to hand tint on this tiny little patch on their very nice broadcasty, high-quality monitors. And they hand tint all that and then go into the next frame. And then after they've done it, somebody obviously unzooms it back to normal size. And as it hadn't lost any resolution, that's what you see uh, in the cinema. And they're hand tinting the left and the right frame by hand to match. Uh, that is just, that's just sick. It's, but that's, that's, uh, that's as impressive as turning the coal chute instead of moving the camera. I mean, that's figuring out how to do it, the, the, how would they do it and let's do it that way because you when you shrink it down you get all the imperfections because you can't you can't be that uh, around precise, the edges because yeah. you can't be that precise you'd be you have to have a jeweler's eye yep i just thought that was so cool and then they just even amplified the stereo effect in uh in post further because i thought it was like working so well just just and also, how do you hand paint in stereo? I mean, I'm sorry, like when they were doing the, <laughs> the face stuff in Flame with, you know, the anti-aging, I was like, oh, that'd be really, really hard. But I'm thinking, oh, well, you know, you could use 3D tools in Flame to, you know, left and right eye and match points and 3D space. This is like, yeah, I have a bunch of tools that can make this easy. Great. Don't use them. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, well, yeah I can make mats. Amazing. Yeah, not allowed to use those. I could track it. No, not allowed to use that. Yep. <laughs> So anyway, uh, I, I'll stop with my... Uh, but there are a whole bunch more if you want to check them out over on uh, FX Guide. So there's one last thing I wanted to talk to you guys about, which uh, came out of a discussion with, uh, I had with uh, Ben Grassman, though uh, Rob alludes to it, but I got to really uh, drill down on a bit with, uh, with Ben, which is uh, Pixel Mondo, which, of course, as I said, it's not the only company that did stuff, but they were the main house, is, is a big uh, company. I mean, it obviously has a lot of offices around the world, probably more than most people would know. So uh, in that same story, we have a rundown of, because some of the shots they would just give to one of the offices to do, like, hey, you guys do this uh, sequence. So what's an example of that? Um, uh, the chase sequence, right? Like there's points in the chase sequence where they couldn't get the camera in with the dog and stuff. So they did fully digital station master, fully digital dog in a digital set of a digital train station. And they would give that to, I think they gave that to the guys in, Beijing, I'm going to say. Um, okay, so that's that's fine. But for other shots, they actually did them around the world on a 24-hour clock. And so they would – and I've got this written out, but I'll give you the short version. Um, and did you guys know this? Did you Have you ever heard about this? Yes, go ahead. Yep. So they would – in New York, they would get some stuff approved and they'd tell Ben in LA. And Ben's a few hours behind. And so then Ben would um, – basically pull those shots and work out what I had to do to them and then put them on the server. Now that's the Pixel Mondo server that now lets everybody else access stuff and all the metadata that they call offset because there was huge LiDAR scans on set and tons of stuff and uh, just awesome amounts of information gathered from on set, like every single prop, everything LiDAR scan and every take LiDAR scan for where the camera ended up. But anyway, they get all that and they stick it on the server with the database and then China would pick it up because China's about exactly, I think, Jeff, uh, almost perfectly out of sync with America in the sense that it's 
12 hours out of sync or 13 hours out of sync with New York. So, you know, day to night, night day to night today. So Beijing would start match moving. Shanghai would do any adjustments to models they were pulling from the database that needed adjusting. And when they were finished, they'd hand it off to Berlin and Frankfurt and Stuttgart, who were doing in order effects animation, character animation and compositing. But if Stuttgart didn't get it nailed in time, they could hand it back to London, who were an hour or so behind Europe, so they would buy an extra hour on the London team. But if the London team still didn't have enough time to get it done, they'd hand it back to Toronto, which is what, same time as New York, but five hours in front of whatever. And then, no, five hours behind New London. And then Toronto would finish it, and then it would be back in New York for a before-lunch review. <laughs> Hello? Like, that's just unbelievably cool. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's amazing. I mean, that's... Sounds globalization. Great. Yeah, you know, and there's a number of these companies now. Like, if you think about it, like Pixel Moto is just one of them. Like, you've got the stuff with MPC and uh, Technicolor. You've got stuff with, um, uh, like, a number of the big facility chains that mean that, you know, and Sydney's part of it. We're, um, we've got Method downstairs here, which is all part of, you know, that scheme that, that feeds into their sort of workflow. And these global entities are getting really good. I mean, Rhythm and Hughes has offices all over the world. Um, right. And uh, to work on a film of this scale and in stereo, I I think this movie would come out wouldn't come out till summer of 2012 if they if they didn't work at that in, in that structure. But you just have to have your and this is something we just talk about in FX PhD this term. You have to have your systems in place so bloody well to do that because I mean I can lose something on my desk right and it's all and at least I know it's in my office. But if you've got like 12 offices spent around the world all accessing stuff. If you have one error in stuff, it would get compounded by like the 10 different offices touching the shot until it comes back and it'd be completely wrong. Um, and you just don't want to waste those kind of resources. So it's like as much as I appreciate these days the tech of the fluid sims or the tech of the particle destruction sequence pipelines or whatever, I'm really in awe these days of the tech of running a major production, which I guess, Jeff, you've got a lot more experience of than I have. Well, well, not, I'm I'm pretty much in commercials, but it's you know it's true. It's 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 definitely the part of the business. The studios are pushing for you know quicker turnaround and everything, and taking advantage of the 24-hour clock is absolutely essential nowadays for filmmaking. The unfortunate part is that there's always the visual effects supervisor who now has a 20-hour day because <laughs> yeah they're, right. they're, they now have to service the, the you know they can't be unavailable in the process anywhere. And, um, you know, it still comes down to those people at the top who have to control and, and approve and, and give feedback and give, give guidance. And, uh, that's not the unfortunate part, but that's kind of the way filmmaking's gotten these days. Yes. Yes. It is pretty impressive though. The, the power you can throw at a film. I mean, obviously Hugo wasn't a small budget film. Um, but that sort of, I mean, that sort of global stuff. Like you used to think, I certainly thought, that uh, in the early days of this, that they were just, you know, handing over roto work or some match moving overseas. But this isn't the case at all. These are highly developed production workflows where each of those countries has its own specialty. And it is not the case that they are just, uh, you know, doing the work nobody else wants to do. Well, and it also goes back to what we were talking about, about relationships. I mean, I, I had the... the um a few years experience working for a company in Los Angeles that had a parent company in Chicago. 
And we rarely used freelancers in Los Angeles, which was unusual because we had a team in Chicago. And we developed a language working back and forth with the Chicago office where you knew the artists, you knew what they were capable of, and you knew that if they said they'd have this for you at 2 o'clock, that you'd have it at 2 o'clock or before, and it would be done, and it would be quality. And you kind of have to have those relationships to pull this stuff off. You have to be able to develop teams and, and have that shorthand and have that experience and have that, that um, I think, I think that's critical. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I take nothing from it. It's just kind of daunting, really. I mean, the, it is. And, uh, you know, we hit this in LA when we were talking to, I'm going to say now, Zoic, about uh, Once Upon a Time that the, they were getting through like hundreds of shots in like 20, well, three weeks. So what is that, 15 working days? And I started doing the math and I was like, man, how do you even get anyone to actually review the shots? Because you'd have to go through, you know, a ton of shots a day. And even then, you'd, ha- you'd yeah. have that assumes no revisions. There's and no it, time for iterations. Yeah. And it's like, well, the process has got it all automated and it's worked out. And obviously it works because the show's not only delivers, but it's successful and it rates well and has rated extremely well, actually. Um, but that's the, the well, system, the engine for that is just I had a note. I had a note, actually. I had the words TV influence question mark on my notes about this, this movie because I, I, you know, we had heard that all the green screens were pre-vised in real time on the set to see framing, which we're hearing more and more. Mm. And you look at a show like, like Pan Am. I know we did the big story about that. And the, like you're talking about with the Zoic work. I mean, they kind of started that process where, you know, everything is always, you know, pre you know you've got it all you're, you're watching it in real time on the set and that's now become the norm um it seems on most films where you know the framing stuff in uh the robot movie uh shit real steel, real steel. Sorry. Yeah. yeah i mean you in the podcast you did with them i mean it, with digital domain i mean that that being able to frame those shots and work those cameras seeing it in real time in previs in on the set i mean that has now become a standard and also surely speeds this up. i mean you know, more than half this movie was green screen, and I don't think most people would know that. Yeah, no, absolutely, and uh, and increasingly thus. You know, I mean, I've been doing stuff uh, with Fifth Kind, who just a complete aside now, who I'm sure we'll touch on this when we do Avengers in the uh, VFX show. But yeah, I mean, their job, their their central tenant is that they want to manage glass to glass in terms of asset management, uh, from the glass of the lens to the glass of projecting though in fact it goes further because they start in pre-pro um a lot and it's really um you know the only thing that allows some of these films to get done is this this really good databasing and control of assets and this vast amount of metadata that's coming off set because because ben was saying on this he had um at the end of the day he could sit down and he could open up any shot in maya he would have uh, null elements in the Maya file for every single prop that was used, which would of course reference into the database for every prop being photogrammetried, uh, separately scanned or whatever, depending on what it was. Obviously, you don't scan clothes, but you photogrammetry them and take texture samples versus you know a car, which would have complete CAD models kind of thing. And then they'd also have the LiDAR scan of the set, but they'd have the LiDAR scan of every point where the camera started and stopped on every take. So if during the 18 takes they started moving things or adjusting things be them either props or the camera they would know where that was in three space 
that would be then combined with the metadata coming off the stereo encoders of the camera and pace rig so they would actually know exactly what the interaxial was as well as the convergence and they'd have the metadata off the Alexa on what it was doing and its time of day and the stuff that was going from the codex boxes and all of that would produce a Maya file with exactly the right camera set up to perfectly match what was going on for every shot on every take at the end of each day. I mean, that's... And then add witness cameras. Oh, yep. Yep. And all that. I mean, it, it truly, I mean, the data management alone is, is daunting, yeah. let alone organizing the data. But you almost have to. You have that much data. You have to have systems that are efficient and, and powerful because yeah. it's going to kill you otherwise. You're going to drown under that's all that a- data. That's a $150 million movie. You know what I mean? Yeah. I guess I just feel like in a couple of years' time, we'll be looking back and going, well, obviously you do all that. I mean, that's how you make a film, right? Well, that's right. what I'm saying. I mean, that's, it's, now it's in a $150 million movie, and in two years from now, it'll be in a $50 million movie, and five years from now, it'll be in a $10 million movie. Actually, I don't know. that it'll be in your phone. I, yeah. I actually think the $30 million films are going to adopt this real fast. I don't even think it's going to take yeah. that long to get that. Well, because think about it. Like, that's the um, films that are in this category. Like, because coming up, up on the VFX show, we've got uh, a double hitter of um, Tree of Life and Melancholia. And, oh, right. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, like, Anonymous was a $30 million film, and they had a huge <laughs> amount of visual effects. And I think that $30 million effects film without mega A grade actors, or at least maybe not actors that are as expensive as some others. Um, and not that this film was had expensive actors, but you know it was a bigger budget film. But there are, I think, there is a place for um, for effects intensive thirty million dollar films. And I would say that because I heard, and again, so we'll discuss this when we get to Avengers. But like uh, Fifth Kind is saving around a million dollars of production in asset management alone. And I was like, mm. bloody hell, that's a lot of money on a you know a budget. And if I was a thirty million dollar company and I could save half a million dollars on my production because somebody could get their act together, I'd, I'd grab that as fast as I possibly could. So anyway, I digress, but um, I just guess this is like, for me, I, I'm at that kind of point of just realizing just how incredibly influential this, uh, this stuff is that's happening behind the imagery that we're kind of getting all excited about with before and after shots. It's attention to detail, just on a different, on a different focus. You're, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely well, right. I also saw today, the, there was an article on the BBC, um, brief little story, and I went to it right away because the headline was, Martin Scorsese wants antidote to theme park films. And he basically said in a quote, we have to react against theme park film as well as they are made and as enjoyable as some of them are. And I think this movie is absolutely the example of what you can do with this technology that's not the theme park movie, that's not the uh, the ride movie, as we say. You know, I mean, this... This damn near convinced me that you could do a romantic comedy in 3D now, and I'd be, and it would be, it could be done well, mm. and reason, and it could be done for a reason, which has always been the joke, you know, when are you gonna start doing romantic comedies in 3D? But you start to see that in the hands of the right filmmakers, it could probably work, and be, well, again, and if you're be using, important. If you're using the stereo as a storytelling tool, like they did here, then. You could make a kids movie. I mean, not, I mean, not a kids movie. You know, what I mean, like a like a Twilight or some nonsense like that. If you if it worked for it, I don't want. To, I wouldn't go see it. But you know, <laughs> I, I girls think, get to see Robert Pattinson all round. You know. Yeah, I think <laughs> I think one other thing that 
we should sort of acknowledge in doing this is that when you say filmmaker, we used to think a bit more about the division of labor as like the director and stuff and the effects technicians. But it's, it's painfully apparent in this film that, you know, the filmmaking sort of thing is now owned by visual effects in every bit as much as it's owned by any other department in the sense that these were not post effects. These were not, uh, you know, these are shots we're going to have to fix in post. This was like really competent filmmakers working with a legendary filmmaker to make films. Oh, by the way, I happen to have a bunch of visual effects, stereo and other things in them. Uh, And I extend that not only to Rob Legato, but to Ben and Ben's team, by the way, because there were other, there's another supervisor with Ben on that I haven't mentioned that I've, should have, I guess, on set uh, quite a lot uh, from Pixel Mondo. But uh, my apologies for that. But um, yeah. Well, the other thing is that, you know, hearing Rob and, and Ben talk about this film, the number of times that they were told, oh, we're going to do that in CG. And they went, no, we're going to shoot that. We need to shoot that. You know, there were many, many examples that um, Rob gave in the podcast. Um, things like the glass house. Uh, the glass, you know, whatever they called it, the, the studio. Yeah. Um, things like, uh, you know, a, a close-up of the, well, the, 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 uh, the automaton at first was to be CG. Yep. And they said, no, 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 we need to build that. And they actually built the automaton, many versions of the automaton. And that's not to say that there weren't scenes that were CG, full-on automaton. But, you know, you need you need people in the visual effects world and who are, close enough to the director and the director has enough clout to be able to say, Oh, we're going to do this this way. This is the way it should be done. And they obviously had that relationship and that power. I think the automaton would not have worked as nearly as well as a character and story point. If it was fully CG at all times. Did you work out how it It, worked? Uh, I, I assumed that there, cause there was that square plate under his hand that they had a magnet or something. Yeah, there was, a, the, there was a motion control. Like unit. a MoCo magnet. Yeah, that was exactly, that feeding the pen. I thought that was but great. But the fact that that thing Looked worked beautiful. at all, yeah. the fact that that, I mean, you, oh, yeah. you, Somebody you, you built really it? easy to assume that that was all done trickery. And the fact that that was built and functional. That it actually and, drew that picture? Yes. Drew the VBS uh, logo. <laughs> <laughs> um, and... And the face too, that the head cranes and it sort of looks and you know it. it, it once it started working, I was like, "That's awesome." I, that was, if I'd been at the meeting, I would have said, "We'll do the hand digital and leave the main guy not digital." I mean, I would have. Right. I'm sorry, I'm that useless. But you know, I confess <laughs> that's what I would have said. Because if somebody said, "Well, I just get it. Oh, it won't work and it'll take forever and it'll just be a hassle," I'd have been wrong. <laughs> Yep, I'm with you though. I would have thought the same thing. I would have guessed that all of the hand, all the drawing, was completely CG, and it wasn't. I mean, there were occasions. There were, there were a couple of occasions where that was only because um, uh, um, the take of the boy with the girl required the thing to be drawing at that point for continuity, and it wasn't drawing at that point of continuity. It wasn't because right. it, it didn't do it, but it yeah. I, I well, think, the other thing I would uh, the other thing I would last, like people to look at when they're looking at the film is is when they're thinking about those issues is the number of times that if you are giving it any thought you just know that there's no way a 3D rig could be where that camera was or doing what that camera was doing. Yes. Hey, look, help me out here. I think it's Alex Henning. There was another supervisor that did a lot of stuff on set with um, 
Pixel Mondo. Does anyone know? Does that ring your bell? I don't have. Uh, I don't okay. have that. I, apo- I think it's Alex. Yeah, I apologize if it's not because uh, obviously I spoke it's to Alex. A, Sounds right, Alex. Something I think Henning sounded right. Yeah, but, but anyway, my my I mean, obviously, uh, and then part of the reason I say that is I don't want Ben to feel like uh, embarrassed that he didn't uh, point out how great the Pixel Mondo team was uh, that worked alongside him and with him. Um, but yeah, obviously. So my my apologies. There are actually also other people. I mean, uh, ILM did some shots, and John Knoll has a VFX uh, credit as well. So we're not trying to say that we're covering everybody here. We're just talking about what we've learned from the people we have spoken to. Uh, and, you know, we spoke to the guys at New Deal and stuff and, and we spoke to many people as we can uh, at Lola and stuff, but we obviously haven't covered everybody. Um, was there anything that you didn't like in the film? I mean, we always do that, so let's do it now. Shots that you kind of went, yeah, not so much. I'll take, well, you know, I have, if, I, if I had to totally nitpick, there was one shot and it was used twice that I, in the screening bothered me. In the second viewing, didn't even bother me at all. Oh, yeah, and right. I was looking, and I was looking for it. There was just a, it was a certain lock-off shot. It was a shot of a looking over the roofs of Paris, and there was a corner. And in one scene, um, Asa and Chloe are walking around the corner to um, George's house, and then they use that same shot again earlier in the film. It was literally the same exact shot, and there was something about it. And part of it is that Hugo has extremely skinny legs. If you notice when he's coming out of the train station, his legs are really, really thin. And this was a really, you know, it was a full building shot and he's walking at the street. So, you know, his legs are just, it, there was probably nothing wrong with it, but that's the only, and I'm saying this is a total nitpick. There was something about those two shots that bugged me on the first viewing. On the second viewing, it totally didn't bother me at all. Um, But that was the only thing. I mean, literally, that was probably the the thing that I, I just went, what? The first time, I would, I would say, I would say, and I'm just trying to like rack my brain while you were talking. Probably the only thing it didn't really bother me, but just something that that I thought about, which I guess is the problem because you don't want the audience thinking about shots. But was when he was following uh, uh, Ben Kingsley after he steals his notebook or yeah. takes his notebook. He follows him to his house and he walks through that um, the little alleyway of druids. Uh, the the stone guys mm-hmm. uh, that felt like a set to me just that little area um, maybe because it was uh, you know you're in the moonlight and it's different everything is like blue and and it was sort of outside the the uh, language you you've seen so far because everything was so warm and whatever it just jumped out to me uh, and they go through that twice right. I, uh, but I'm being, I'm being nitpicky. I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm yeah like I, I said, I mentioned the mouse. I, I'm almost embarrassed to ask. I'm almost embarrassed to say what I said because it's like I just don't feel it that strongly. I just it was one of the things, and I think it was the skinny legs is all it was. You know, there is one other thing that was slightly funny. There was a scene when they're going through the chase, and they kept on running into famous people in the French cafe, um, or at least you're meant to, I think, pick them as being very famous Frenchmen, like the Django Reinhardt kind of thing. Yeah, and I was thought it was like I think is the trouble with that is it then becomes a game, and you almost sort of like have taken out of the film because you want to make sure that you didn't miss any of the. I mean, it's a it's this weird line I think you've got with a film like this that's both being clever and intel- I mean intellectually clever, not like clever clever, uh, not silly clever. And uh, yet, you know, you, you, I mean, how much do you want the audience to be thinking about what they're looking at and how much do you want them to just be in the story? 
And I was worried that we were going to go that way, that it would be like, you know, gag after gag, that you had to be paying attention to notice that that was, you know, Picasso walking through the back of frame or that was, you know, whoever it was. I think it's just that detail thing. Yeah. Who was in the cafe? uh, Sorry? Who was in the cafe that that you were supposed to see Uh, or that you saw other than the Django? Okay. Well, actually, one of the things that I, I sort of noticed was that I was meant to be noticing because it, it kind of held on a couple of people um, a little longer than it seemed that it should. Um, so there was... Um, God, who was it? There was somebody um, doubling for... Uh, yeah. It was two writers, wasn't it? Yeah, something like that. Um, and I'm yeah. I've gone and got a blank. <laughs> But oh, no. it was they, they held on the shots a bit too long, and so then you saw right. them, and I'm going to say like Latouche Le- Trek, but that's not right. And you just kind of went, oh, am I meant to be picking these people? At which right. point, then I was like, oh, am I meant to be playing that game? You know that there right. are famous people all the way through this from Paris, and then I, I didn't, like, I didn't enjoy Scorsese's cameo. Yeah, that was yeah, fun. that was good. <laughs> yeah, no, that was especially because he didn't talk. You couldn't really hear him talk, so it sort of like set him in the layer a little more. There you go. Uh, but I did. I didn't. I as soon as I heard the music and they ran into the cafe, I was like, "Oh, it's gonna be Django." But then they showed the guy playing and he had all his fingers. So I was like, "Oh, well, it's not Django." Well, he but didn't then, actually. I think two of them were. He wasn't see? using two fingers on oh. one hand. They didn't show him. They didn't show him playing enough that I and I got caught up like you did. I was like, "Oh, am I?" Now I'm thinking about that. Yeah. And then, uh, but then when he stood up. After he steps through the thing and he's got it holding his guitar and he's playing a Macafari, I was like, "All right, well, it is Django," but you know, yeah. Uh, anyway, I, it, but then I stopped thinking about it. I was like, "I don't want to think about that." Exactly. So, it's like, yeah, I don't absolutely. want to play that game. Hey, um, yeah. so look, we probably need to to wind it up here. I think we've universally agreed that this film's biggest fault, the thing that's probably the worst thing about it, was uh, whoever was cutting the trailers and doing the marketing. Because <laughs> we, we probably don't think that it's done it justice and will lose an audience that would otherwise potentially be some of us who wouldn't have seen it. I mean, I would see it because it's a Scorsese film and I have a huge amount of respect for him. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I think there are people that just wouldn't see it because they didn't think it would be the kind of film they would like. And I think that's a shame. So if you are... Yeah, I that, agree. Uh, hopefully people have seen it before they're hearing this. But if you know people that maybe are like, yeah, not so much, you know, get them to go because uh, I think we need to support the film. Well, hopefully it's in the theaters for a long time because I think word of mouth will do it a yeah. lot of good because I, I I mentioned in the FX podcast intro uh, for the Rob Legato piece that you know when I sat in the theater the second time I saw it, I was actually sitting in a row right by the door. Um, damn assigned seats. Um, but the um, people that were walking out while I was watching the credits, I mean, I've rarely heard so many glowing things about a movie by people in a movie theater at the end of a movie. Right. I was really, I mean, I think that the word of mouth is going to do really well for this film. Conversely, I went at 10 in the morning to the very first screening on Tuesday before it went, before I had to go to a shoot. And it was up until the second preview, I was the only one in the theater. Wow. And then there were two other people in the theater throughout. There's three people in the theater the whole yeah. movie. Well, if it's any, I don't know if it is, but if it's any guide, the... Guild screening in Los Angeles. Uh, Scorsese got a standing ovation. So um, the audience yeah. applauded I, I in my showing too. Yeah. I wasn't saying that to say that the film wasn't. Oh no! Going to see it. I was just saying that it was just it was an interesting. No, I think you're absolutely right. I think that. Yeah, film. I think 
I think that if you do see it, you like it. But what I took from your comment was more that necessarily people aren't queuing up to get into it. That you know, I think it, as Jeff said, it will need that word of mouth to uh, to move it forward. I wouldn't yeah. mind seeing it like in Ohio or, or you know over the holidays um, in Ohio or Chicago or something, uh, uh, just to get out of the Los Angeles you know thing. I'd be curious to see the audience reaction. Yeah, well, I don't think it's going to be playing here in Australia until I don't know, like twenty twenty or something. But anyway. Oh really? Oh yeah. It's, That's uh, a shame. Well, yeah. Hey, um. We need to wind it up, but uh, as we like to do at the end of each show, um, if people are interested to track you down, follow you, tweet you or uh, Twitter you or, um, or say hi, Jeff, what's uh, the best place to go? Um, I am neonmargarita.com, and there's a blog there, and I'm neonmarg, the short version, N-E-O-N-M-A-R-G on Twitter. And Jason? And, of course, FX Guide, sorry. <laughs> uh, Jason Diamond, one word on Twitter, like the ring, Diamond. Uh, MBS Productions, uh, my company with my brother and myself, uh, like MBS, like my big spoon. <laughs> Every time you quote that, you come up with something different. Hey, yeah. um, I want to thank uh, not only our team behind the scenes, um, Matt and Todd, who are producing the show and stuff, but I also want to thank the guys that have been organizing and the other co-hosts, because I, I want to tell you guys that we were going to review a different film this week, and we, we just didn't like the film. And quite frankly, I just don't have a lot of interest in doing a podcast where we just rip a new one for somebody that's, you know, we're just not that interested in, or just it's a boring podcast because we found the film not very engaging. Um, so we moved up Hugo, which means we just changed all the schedules around. And there are a lot of people that volunteer their time on the show, and uh, including Jeff, you, and, uh, and uh, Jason. And you guys were really good in, you know, juggling schedules, and we you know, we'd prefer to obviously stick to a schedule, but not at the cost of producing poor quality shows. So uh, hopefully everybody, um, you know, could live with that. But for those of you, especially our other hosts that all got shuffled around, uh, we just want to say thanks because we do appreciate it. I mean, it is the worst thing in the world to have schedules that just people don't stick to. But by the same token, I think, you know, we're here for the craft. And if we don't feel it, I don't think we should be moving forward. So... There you go, um, which also means that sometimes when I say we're going to do films, we don't get around to doing them, sometimes because we forget, but it's mainly because we probably don't like them and we left them off the schedule. Well, can um, I add in from scheduling purposes also, you're in Australia, Jeff's in LA, and I'm in New York. I mean, that's, it's hard that's a scheduling issue as it is. Oh, yeah. And then we have Matt in uh, London, and we have uh, people in the uh, East Coast, and uh, of course other people here so yeah it's it is a bit confusing i know but uh, look we do um really appreciate your support of the show and you know we've been really pretty humbled haven't we jeff the kind of numbers that we're getting on these shows now and just the response we get from people at facilities around the world I, i'm trying to say this because i really am genuinely appreciative of the support people have been giving us on the show yeah absolutely Okay, well, that's it for this week. As I said, uh, coming up next week, hopefully, uh, is going to be this double hitter on uh, indie films, indie films with effects. Maybe some takes you're not expecting from us here at the uh, VFX Show. I'm Mike Seymour. Thanks so much for being with us. Until next time. See you. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at vfx at fxguide.com. Copyright 2012, FX Guide, LLC.